passage actually provides some of the backdrop to what we're going to study today because today we're going to study about the Lord's Supper in particular about offensive worship that was happening in Corinth and then we're going to take Lord's Supper today as in view of what Christ has done for us. But I want to share with you from Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, Matthew gives us the account of Jesus before he is betrayed or while he is being betrayed initiating the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And it says in Matthew chapter 26, it says, Now as they were eating, in verse 26, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What we're going to look at today is that beautiful meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before he was betrayed and arrested. And what we're going to look at is what, uh, what we can do in the midst of it to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ and why we celebrate it together. And so as we prepare to do that, would you pray with me that God would help us to clearly see this beautiful picture of his sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray this morning that as we continue to sing about you and about your glory, God, I pray that you would help us to, to see that our assembling together should not be taken lightly. This is a huge moment. This is a time when, when Christians are gathered together for your glory. So God, help us to cherish these moments and to treat them as solemn moments together for your glory. God, I pray that you'll help us to rightly see your supper. Lord, I pray you'll help us to, to see how we can be offensive and God, sometimes how we might be able to edify and build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, you, you deserve nothing less than our complete submission. So I pray, God, you would help us to walk after you in every way. To you, God, be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Would you lead us? This morning, I'm going to ask you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. By the way, if you're here this morning and you do not have a Bible, I want you to see me after the service because I have one to give to you. Hebrews, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 is where we're going to be this morning. As we continue to walk through this letter that Paul has written to the church at Corinth, he comes upon this discussion and correction of what's taking place during their Lord's Supper observances. And so just to guard us as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper, it's good to look at sometimes where, where people have gone astray and how we might be able to guard against walking down that same path. And so what we have today is a bit of encouragement and a bit of warning as we approach the Lord's Supper. And anything we do on behalf of God, that we do so with reverence, we do so not taking anything of the Lord lightly. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul shares about offensive worship that has taken place within their gatherings for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, I'm going to read this to us and then we're going to walk through it bit by bit. If you are physically able to stand with me, I would encourage you to do that in honor of God's word as I read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17, going to verse 34. Uh, don't be scared, we'll try to make good progress on this this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes and says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions When I come, would you pray with me? Lord, help us to understand these verses. Lord, I pray that we will not see this as detached from us, but that this is vital to our walk with you today. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us as a church to model and glorify you in everything that we say and do. Guard us, God, against handling the things of worship lightly. Help us to hold them in reverence and, God, to solemnly uh, be obedient to you for your glory and honor. Lord, I thank you that we are not the only church this morning who are lifting up the word of God. I pray you would bless all the other churches in our community that preach the gospel unashamedly. Lord, I pray you will use your word to feed your sheep. God, you know the hearts of every person who's walked in here. God, may you work to use your word to teach them this morning that you are their greatest treasure. Lord, I pray that we will worship you and give you glory that you alone deserve. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And everyone says... Amen. You can be seated for just a moment. A little bit of background to this. This is the earliest account of communion service that we have in the scriptures. The earliest account is right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So Paul is giving us a picture of what's going on early in the life of the church when it comes to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. But what he's going to point out here at the very, very beginning is that there is an offense that needs to be dealt with. And so if you're taking notes, and you should take notes, this first section, verses 17 through 22, is the offense that Paul is addressing. Here is the offense, starting in verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, I do not praise you, he means, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Just so you know, this is the worst condemnation that can be given to a worship service, is that when people come to it, they're worse off than when they came. Can I help you, Fairhaven? The last thing we should ever do is do anything that causes people to spiritually be worse off after they've been here than before they came. We should never be described in our worship of God as doing something that is worse for them than for the better. He says that what happens is in their observance of the Lord's Supper, people are actually harmed 
rather than uplifted. People are actually broken down rather than lifted up. Their observance of the Lord's Supper was actually spiritually harmful to them and made others weaker in the faith. I'm telling you what, Paul, as a good preacher of the gospel, cannot allow this type of thing to continue. It's been reported to him that in the church in Corinth, they've started to use the Lord's Supper very lightly, and they've started to use it for their own means, for their selfish means. And in the end, Paul says, here is the offense. Your worship is actually for the worse, not for the better. He says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, notice that Paul is defining the gathering. He's going to use it three times. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together. And what he's speaking to is not just a general gathering. He's speaking of them gathering together as the church, those who have been rescued and redeemed, those who are part of the same faith fellowship, part of the same community of believers. He says you're gathering together as the church, and yet it's possible to gather together as the church and not honor Jesus. Uh-oh, <laughs> yikes, it's possible to gather together on Sundays and Wednesdays and any other time we gather together as a church, it is possible to do that and not be honoring Jesus at all. We can actually, as churches, be found guilty of just gathering for our own sake. So we can pat ourselves on the back or think we've done something really great for God, and in the end, we haven't honored him in the least bit. The church in Corinth, in the midst of their observance of the Lord's Supper, was actually gathering together as the church and yet not honoring Jesus. And so what this tells us is that attendance does not equal adoration. Just because you show up to the worship service or the gathering of Christians does not mean you're necessarily adoring Jesus. Attendance does not equate with adoration of God. And gathering in the same place doesn't equal unity. We can all be in the same building and not be unified. We can be in the same building while hating the person sitting next to us. Just so you know, Paul's about to address this. There is no place in the worship of God for these things. So he starts out by showing that the offense is, A, their worship damages B, their worship is divided. Paul shows that their coming together is the gathering of the church, and yet there are divisions or factions, he says. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And I love this. Even Paul understands that sometimes when people relay information to you, they might not relay it correctly. So he says, I believe it in part that there are divisions, maybe not the full boat that someone just brought and shared with me, but that there's some truth in the midst of what they're saying. He says, I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that the genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 19 shows that factions exist within the church to make believers who are genuine recognizable. Now let's be clear, factions or division in church should not be Division should not be found among Christians. That's not what we've been called to. Christ has saved us into one body for his glory. But in the midst of factions, genuine believers are clearly seen as they seek unity in Christ. You know how you can tell who genuine believers are? Watch them in the midst of division. They're the ones who are bringing unity. They're the ones who are calling for unity. They're not the ones mixing it up and dividing up into teams. The genuine believers are the ones who are fighting against division and factions. He says, factions exist in the church, so you can finally see who's really a Christian. <laughs> Yikes. Paul's getting serious. 
So their worship damages, their worship is divided, and C, their worship despises the poor. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says, this isn't even about the Lord anymore. When you guys get together to have your little meals, it ain't even about Jesus. It's not connected to him anymore. He says, you're not even having the Lord's Supper. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. All right, you ready for this? Their worship despises the poor, and it's seen in their observance of the Lord's Supper. There is selfishness everywhere when they come together to observe. You want to know how they see it? Number one, the rich people usually show up early, and the poor come late. You want to know why that is, usually? Because the poor are still working. The rich can show up anytime they want. They're ready to go, but the poor show up late because they got to finish the job. Well, guess what? He says that there is division. The poor are being despised because the poor, can, before they can even get there, they've already started mealing. They're not thinking of others. They're only concerned with themselves. Not only that, but he says, but normally when they had meals together, the rich would have been the ones who brought the food to share with everyone. Well, guess what they're found doing? He says, some are going hungry Another is getting drunk. So guess what they're doing? The rich people bring the food for the meal, and they keep it all for themselves. So the poor people show up late, and there's nothing left for them to have. And this is the Lord's Supper they're observing as the church. There's something wrong with that, right? Do you believe that's wrong? (laughs) Does that sound like the right thing to do? Their worship is despising the needy and the poor, exactly who they should be fighting for as Christians. And they're found to be despising them. And this is happening in their observance of the Lord's Supper. In their selfishness, the poor goes away hungry and the rich goes away drunk. It's a picture of one who leaves in need and another who is overindulged. And Paul says, what? That's my way. how I read it, Paul exclaims, how could such a selfishness mark a meal that is to remember the sacrifice of Jesus? You know how we're going to remember how Jesus gave it all up for us? By keeping it all for ourselves. What? So we're honoring the sacrifice of Jesus by not sacrificing anything at all, but saying that's mine. And the church in Corinth looks like a bunch of little infants saying that's mine. That's mine. I'm going to keep it. And Paul says this cannot be the case. And then he gives you some rhetorical questions to mark the seriousness of it. He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Listen, he says, if you're really hungry, then eat at home before you come. Don't come in here and have a feast in front of the poor people and not give them any. You got a house, go eat there, then come ready to celebrate. He says, you got houses, right? The implied answer would have been, yep. And then he says, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? The implied answer is, yep. Because of their selfishness, they despise and humiliate the church of God. And Paul says, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is the picture of worship that is self-centered. This is the picture of taking lightly A solemn gathering for the purpose of worshiping Jesus for his sacrifice for their sin. And instead of being uplifting, it is a time of division and despising and separation. People would be, it'd be better if they just stayed home. 
Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to connect this to the origin. So he shows the offense, verses 17 through 22. In verses 23 and 26, he gives the origin of the Lord's Supper. Notice what he says in verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. So after pointing out their offense, Paul turns to remind them of the circumstances of the Lord's Supper beginning. In observing the Lord's Supper, all we're doing is imitating the meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he was taken off and arrested. Matthew 26, which we read earlier, Luke chapter 22. And in those texts, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, marking a remembrance of God's deliverance of the people from Egypt and looking forward to the expectation of the consummation of the kingdom. Not only that, but behind all of this is Exodus 24, when Moses is confirming the covenant with the people and they have sacrifice and they eat together. This is, what they're doing in the church at Corinth is not just having a quick meal. They are representing and imitating what Jesus did with his disciples that was marking the deliverance of God, of his people from Egypt, from all way back in their history. How can that be a, how can that be an event to be taken lightly? The fact that it represented their people's deliverance from slavery and it represented and imitated Jesus eating with his own disciples. And when you look at the church, all you see is division and selfishness and despising. Listen, the way you correct that is not by saying, stop it. The way Paul corrects it is by saying, do you remember what this is representing? He says, Paul says he received from the Lord and delivered or passed it on to them. I, I, he seems to say that this came directly from the Lord. He received it so Damascus Road possibly, but this is, Paul says he received and passed it on to them. And he says what he passed on was the night Jesus was betrayed, or that wording also says in the midst of being betrayed, the institution of the supper came under these painful circumstances. When Jesus was being betrayed, he was sharing this meal with them. Just so, just so the Corinthians know, they're not the only ones having a messy time during this supper. But when it was first initiated, it happened in the midst of betrayal of Christ in front of them. What a painful reminder of what Jesus had to do to rescue them. Look at verse 24. It says, and when he had given thanks, when Jesus had given thanks for the bread, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what we see is Jesus is the bread from heaven. He says, this is my body. Jesus is saying, this bread represents me. I am the bread. I'm the manna from heaven. I'm the one given for your spiritual hunger. John 6, 27 through 35, Jesus shares that he is the manna that has come down from heaven for man's spiritual hunger. What does the bread remind us of in the Lord's Supper? That Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our spiritual hunger. And he did it through his own death on the cross. Through Jesus' death, he satisfies the spiritual hunger of man. Just so you know, I want to guard you against a couple of errors that take place with this verse. When it says, when Jesus says, this is my body, there have been some who interpret this literally. It's called transubstantiation. It's the idea that while the, while the person is eating the bread, it actually becomes the body of Christ. That comes from the teaching of Aristotle, but I do not believe that's what Jesus is saying here. I do not believe Jesus is saying, this is literally my body 
Because what we need to remember is that Christ makes this connection several times, including in the Gospel of John. We see places in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the sheep gate. Just so you know, Jesus isn't saying, I'm literally a gate made of wood. But he's saying, I am the one by which the sheep come and go. The same way that his, bread, his body isn't literally bread, he's saying this is for man's spiritual hunger. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. The picture here is to keep on doing this. And so Christians, by breaking and receiving bread together, recall Christ's sufferings for our salvation. Every time we get together and break bread together here at the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves of the fact that Jesus died so that we might be saved and he suffered on our behalf. That's why this whole idea of division during the Lord's Supper or people taking for themselves and despising others has no room because Jesus is giving us a picture of the fact that he gave up everything for us, for our salvation. The Lord's Supper is one of God's ordained means to be gracious to his people, to draw them close to himself. The intended result of observing the Lord's Supper is to have our faith strengthened and to fortify us to continue on our pilgrimage, according to Sean Wright. So God desires in observing the Lord's Supper that our faith would be strengthened and fortify us, strengthen us to continue to walk, and we need that regularly. Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. It's a substitution. He gives it in our place. Verse 25, he says, the cup. After, after he says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the new covenant was through his blood, through his death on the cross. Jeremiah 31, 31 is the only text in the Old Testament to speak of the new covenant that God promised and God promised there was coming a new covenant that would last beyond the others because it would be based in the faithfulness of Jesus, not in man's faithfulness. Listen, everybody pay attention to me for one second. This is good news because the old covenant, we couldn't keep it. Anybody in this room feel confident you could keep the old covenant, you could keep the law? That's the right answer. Yay, you. Right? No. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law. Galatians chapter 3. That means we're all cursed. We stand under a curse because none of us can keep the law perfectly in every way. That's bad news. But the new covenant is in Jesus' blood because he's the only one who could keep it perfectly. So the new covenant isn't based on your ability to do anything good for God and to somehow earn salvation. The new covenant is Jesus is the only one who could perfectly fulfill the law and be perfectly obedient to God. And in such, if you are in union with Christ, you are counted as perfect forevermore. That's new covenant. Jesus said, that's in my blood. Jesus had to die to usher in this new covenant to secure it so that we might be Saved, and not just saved for a few moments until we blow it again, but saved for the rest of our days. He said, this covenant is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the Lamb of God that John the Baptist pointed to in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
we needed that lamb to bleed and to die. And just so you know, this is great. This is the sacrifice of Jesus. This is life being given up for another person's life. And this covenant is secured in Christ's work, even though we are continually covenant breakers. This new covenant is greater because Christ's sacrifice is greater than any animal sacrifice that took place in the Old Testament. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect, and it was superior to every other sacrifice that had ever been given. And while the Corinthians were despising the poor at the Lord's Supper, Jesus was despised and rejected for our rescue, according to Isaiah 53, verse 3. Jesus was despised, and yet the Corinthians find themselves despising the poor. There is no place in the worship of God for the despising of the needy. There is no place in the worship of God for division and factions. We've been saved so that we might be others-centered, that we might consider others greater than ourselves, that we might sacrifice for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that they might be strengthened and edified. And I'm telling you, the Corinthians are not modeling this, but they can if they would repent. Verse 26, Jesus says, do this as often as you eat in remembrance of me, right? Just so you know, as often as you eat is an exclusive instruction given only here. So we hear here in, in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're to keep on doing this celebration of the Lord's Supper. We're to keep on doing it. Until when? When do we stop? When Jesus comes back. So until Jesus comes back, guess what we're supposed to be doing? Remembering his death. Proclaiming his death until he returns. And so here we see this is an ongoing celebration that is for our good and for our benefit. He says, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take Lord's Supper, when we observe it, we're doing more than just having some ritual. We are proclaiming, we are announcing to the world that this is what Jesus has done for salvation of sinners. That's a big deal. If, that means that there may be people in this room right now who are not Christians, but we're going to show them, we're going to announce the death of Jesus on their behalf. We're going to see it in picture form. Jesus broke his body. He spilled his blood. Why? So that you as a sinner might be rescued and forgiven. Or should we just, everybody put on their sad face and let's do this real quick so we can get it over with and get on to real lunch. This is a reminder that even as Christians, we are still spiritually hungry people, aren't we? Listen, our hunger is satisfied in Jesus, but we still long for him, don't we? And so when we come together to remember the Lord's Supper, we're not just, okay, pass the plate, pass the plate, pray, and let's move on. We're remembering Jesus. You're the only one who satisfies my hunger. You're the only one who does it, and I need you every day. I need you every day, God. That's a big deal, isn't it? That's not just some ritual that we do at the end of a service every once in a while. That is remembering Jesus died so that we might be cured of spiritual hunger and we might be satisfied in him. There's no place for selfishness at this table because Jesus died not just for you and me, he died for them. So announce it when you observe it. He says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh man, I better rush. Okay, here we go. Let's move quickly. I need you to think fast as we go through this. He says in verse 27, 
Whoever therefore eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, I'm not exactly sure what this phrase means, but I think it's talking about the fact that this solemn observance should not be treated lightly. The Lord's Supper involves identification with the body of Christ, the community of faith, and as such, we should not be found observing it in an unworthy manner as some of the Corinthians had been. So the, guard, the warning here is guard our hearts from losing all of God in these things of worship, that we would stop losing the awe of God, that when we came in together to observe Lord's Supper and to preach and to pray and to sing together, we believe God's present and we believe he's going to do something. He's going to do something great. And so what happens in the church of Corinth is some of them have lost their awe of God and it's shown out in the fact that they treat the Lord's Supper so lightly. Folks, we can be just as guilty of falling into that if we don't guard ourselves. It can become about rituals. It can become about traditions. And no more awe of God would be present. But that's not what he intended when we gathered. He intended that when we gather, we proclaim his greatness. We remember what he's done for us. And as such, we want the awe of God to spread throughout all of us. We want everyone to walk in here expecting God's going to do something unbelievable in our lives and in our church and in our community. So we should not be found handling it in an unworthy manner. So he tells us what we are to do. So we see the offense in verse 17 through 22. We see the origin of the supper in 23 verse and 26. And now we see the outcome, verses 27 through 34. He says in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's a solemn observance and as a result, Paul states that every Christian who takes the Lord's Supper should examine himself before he takes it. And he says, here's the reason why, verse 29, because anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. We don't want to communicate as we take Lord's Supper and observe it. We don't want to communicate error in any way in our treatment of it. We want to communicate exactly what Christ has done, and we don't want to come at that looking at it lightly. We want to communicate the truth of what Christ has done. And as such, we need to examine ourselves to make sure, am I walking into this as a ritual? Or am I walking into this as a worship of a holy God who has done everything for my pardon? And then he says this, many are weak and ill and some have died. Can I just make a statement real quick? Sometimes sin leads to physical consequences. Sometimes. Not every time. Not every physical thing we face is necessarily a result of our sin. But sometimes it is. And here, Paul even says that there are people in the church at Corinth who are weak and ill and some have died because of the way they've handled the Lord's Supper. <laughs> All I know is that should cause us some pause. That should cause us the, the need to say, whoa, let's make sure that we are, are handling this rightly. Sin is serious business. And then he speaks about what God's doing. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we actually examined ourselves, there'd be nothing left to examine. There'd be nothing else for someone else to find. He says in 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You know what Paul's doing for the church in Corinth? Bringing the word of God to them as discipline. God acting in discipline to correct error. Lovingly, God doesn't want the church to keep on handling the Lord's Supper this way. And so Paul speaks the words of God to them that they might repent. And he says, this is God's goodness to you, not his hatred. 
He's disciplining you so that we may not be condemned with the world. Oh, that's good news. God's discipline is actually to keep us and to guard our hearts in him so that we would not be condemned like the rest of the world. That's the goodness of God. He disciplines those who are his that we might repent and continue to walk after him. Aren't you glad about that? Listen, I know, I know it's not easy to say that when God's doing the discipline. And I know at that point we're like, God, I need you to stop doing that as soon as possible. But the discipline of God is not just some arbitrary matter. The discipline of God is to cause and lead us to repent and to turn away from sin and to walk after him. What a gracious thing God does to not let us continue to walk after those sins. Then what's to be expected? He finishes off by saying, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. <laughs> what does Paul expect to happen at the Lord's Supper next time they observe it? Wait. Wait for everyone to come. Wait for the poor to arrive. Don't get in a hurry. Gather together to worship together. So he tells them to wait for one another. That's worship that edifies, not breaks down. He tells them if you're hungry, eat at home. <laughs> Practical advice from Paul. Don't come to the Lord's Supper ready to eat it all up for yourself. If you're hungry, eat at home and then come ready to observe it. Right? Think of others above yourselves. Eat at home so that you might sacrifice here for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider what unifies. Consider what builds up their faith. And if you have to eat at home, then eat at home. Listen, I'll leave you guys with this before we celebrate. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our spiritual hunger that is satisfied by Christ alone. And we need that reminder all the time. Because we start to forget that Jesus is the only one who satisfies. And number two, I want us to remember that Jesus has left us an example to imitate. He ate this meal with his disciples before he was taken out and betrayed and arrested. And as such, today we remember the sufferings of Jesus for us that we could be forgiven and ransomed. And I don't know about you, but that's a great thing to announce to this lost world, that Jesus has done all that is necessary for us to be rescued and redeemed from our sin. Every person in here is a sinner. Every person in here has tried to be God. And we deserve the judgment of God for our sin. We deserve to be separated from him forever in hell. And yet Jesus came. God sent his son and his son broke his body and bled out so that we might be saved. And the Bible calls us to repent. Turn away from being your own God and turn to the only true king and worship him. What we're going to do here in just a second is we're going to remember that it took the sacrifice of Jesus to make that happen. And we celebrate as Christians who have been saved that Jesus did that for us. Before we were ever born, Christ had already bled and died for us. That's good news, folks. And this is not to be treated lightly. When we observe this this morning, let's remember the body of Christ given for us, the blood spilled so that we might proclaim to a lost and dying world that he did the same thing for them too. Maybe this morning you and I need to examine our hearts to see whether there's any sin within us that we're not confessing 
If we've not been repentant, now is the time to do it before we take Lord's Supper. I want you to pray and I want you to confess sin. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means you come as obedient as possible as we do this. So let's confess sin. Let's examine our hearts to see where we stand with God. Also, we need to be unified together. If you've got a problem with your brother or sister in Christ in this room, that cannot stand. You need to deal with that as best you can. You need to seek reconciliation and forgiveness. You need to heal that relationship and then celebrate the unity that is in Christ together as the church. And let's do this to remember all that he's done for us. Let's examine our hearts to see where we stand with God, where we stand with each other, and let's ask God to help us to not do this as a ritual. Not just do it because it's the next thing on the schedule, but we do this to proclaim that Jesus has given everything for our pardon. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask you during this time to help us to examine our hearts and to see, God, whether we need to confess sin to you, God, to to get things right with you, Lord, whether we need to heal broken relationships with the Christians around us, God, I pray that in this moment you would help us to examine our hearts. Holy Spirit, point out the areas in our hearts where we're not loving Christ as we should. Lord, I pray that you would convict us, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your beauty today. And God, I pray that as we prepare to take Lord's Supper, God, help us to not make this another ritual. But God, our hearts would ache for the return of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to celebrate today, anticipating your return and longing for that day. And until that time comes, God, I pray you'll help us to be sacrificial, that we would care about the faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ as much as we do our own. Lord, that we would seek to uplift and edify your church because that's what you intended when you died for us. Oh, Lord, in this moment, help us to glorify you. God, convict us of sin. Cause us to love you more. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.